Today is Wednesday, March the 1st, 2023. Welcome to the award-winning Personal Computer Show. I'm Hank Key, and do you know who has your personal data? Do you know how big tech companies are using your personal data? Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network, prn.live, streaming on the Internet. Podcast of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. You can leave us a message with your question or comment at hank at pcradioshow.org. Companies can no longer silence laid-off employees in exchange for severance. If your company lays you off, your employer might offer you severance pay, but only if you agree to adhere to a number of restrictions. Staying quiet is often one of them. But the National Labor Relations Board put employers on notice that they can no longer silence laid-off employees in two very specific ways that the board says violates employees' rights under Sections 7 and 8 of the National Labor Relations Act. Employers can no longer include a broadly written confidentiality clause that requires you to keep mum about terms of your severance agreement, and they can no longer include a broadly written non-disparagement clause that prohibits you from discussing the terms and conditions of your employment with third parties. Federal Trade Commission proposes banning non-competes for workers, a severance agreement that is unlawful if it precludes an employee from assisting code workers with workplace issues concerning their employer and from communicating with others, including a union and the board, about his employment. The board wrote in its decision, The ruling is a reversal of what the previous administration, NLRB members, had decided in a prior case were lawful restrictions on employees as a condition of receiving severance. With the exception of railroads and airlines, U.S. business employers are subject to the NLRB authority. While the Labor Board's ruling could be appealed, the ruling is effective immediately. That means employers must review and, if necessary, revise their severance agreements to ensure they don't include overly broad language that would restrict workers' rights in the two ways the board ruling indicates. The board's decision will give back a bit of power to employees, but how it plays out remains to be seen. Companies are definitely incentivized to silence their departing employees because it helps them keep all the skeletons in the closet. This decision opens the door, while on the one hand, sunlight is the best medicine and great exposure should lead to better companies. This decision could also change the dynamics of a severance negotiation. FTC proposes rule for a nationwide ban on non-compete clauses for workers. Proposed Federal Trade Commission rule would ban, invalidate most non-compete clauses across the country. The Federal Trade Commission proposed a rule that would prohibit employers from requiring workers to sign non-compete clauses that restrict them from working for competitors or starting new businesses that offer similar services for a period of time. The FTC's announcement slammed non-compete clauses 
as a widespread and often exploitative practice that suppresses wages, hampers innovation, and blocks entrepreneurs from starting new businesses. The agency estimated that once the new rule is implemented, it could allow wages to rise by nearly $300 billion per year and broaden career opportunities for roughly 30 million Americans. The freedom to change jobs is core to economic liberty and to a competitive, thriving economy. FTC Chair Lena M. Khan said in a statement, non-competes block workers from freely switching jobs, depriving them of higher wages and better working conditions, and depriving businesses of a talent pool that they need to build and expand. By ending this practice, the FTC's proposal would promote greater dynamism, innovation, and healthy competition. Non-compete clauses have applied to a relatively large segment of the American workforce. A 2021 study published in the Journal of Law and Economic found that about 18% of the workers are bound by non-competes, while 38% have been subject to at least one non-compete clause previously in their careers. The study found that only 10% of employees negotiate with employers over a non-compete agreement, which can represent an opportunity to potentially secure more favorable employment terms. About non-competes and one-third of workers are presented with their non-compete only after already accepted their job offer. What would the FTC rule do? The FTC issued a preliminary finding that non-competes constitute an unfair method of competition and violate Section 5 of the Federal Trade Commission Act as the authority for this proposed rulemaking. Under the proposed rule, the FTC would make it illegal for an employer to enter into or attempt to enter into a non-compete with a worker, maintain a non-compete with a worker, or represent to a worker under certain circumstances they're subject to a non-compete. The proposal rule would cover independent contractors and anyone who does paid or unpaid work for an employer. Existing non-competes would be invalidated and employers would be required to rescind them and notify workers previously subject to such clauses that they're no longer in effect. Zuckerberg introduces Llama. That's L-L-A-M-A. That's with two L's. Meta's answer to ChatGPT. The artificial intelligence-powered tool reportedly isn't currently integrated into any of the company's public products, but will be available for researchers. OpenAI, ChatGPT, Google's Bard, and Microsoft's Prometheus now has more competition. There's yet another large language model-powered artificial intelligence in town. It's Meta, the company formerly known as Facebook. Introduced its own AI, called Llama, which stands for Large Language Model Meta AI. CEO Mark Zuckerberg described his company's AI product in a Facebook post. We're releasing a new state-of-the-art AI large language model called Llama, designed to help researchers advance their work. LLMs have shown a lot of promise in generating texts, having conversations, summarizing written material, and more complicated tasks like solving math theorems or predicting protein structures. 
But Zuckerberg did not explain exactly what, if any of those tasks, Lama could currently accomplish. In fact, the only detail that Zuckerberg offered on the large language model announcement is that his company is committed to this open model of research and they'll make their new model available to the AI research community. In a company blog post published included a link to a full research paper on the AI and its GitHub model card. Meta offered significantly more information. Like other large language models, Llama works by recursively generate text. Llama was trained on text from 20 different languages. Meta described its AI as a smaller foundation model that requires far less computing power and resources than other large language models and said Llama will be available in multiple sizes. The company further emphasized its commitment to transparency and responsible AI development and reiterated that only AI researchers will be given access. The company wrote, To maintain integrity and prevent misuse, we are releasing our model under a non-commercial license focused on researcher use cases. Access to the model will be granted on a case-by-case basis to academic researchers. Those affiliated with organizations in government, civil society and academia, and industry research laboratories around the world. So far at this stage in the research, LAMA has not been incorporated into any of Meta's products or platforms, including Instagram and Facebook. So what are we to make of the announcements made by Meta? At the moment, it's hard to say how LAMA will stack up against other tech giants' AI attempts in a rapidly crowded field. However, just about every recent large language model launched so far has come with its own share of snafus. Google and Microsoft both integrated AI text generators into their search platforms and both ended up unwittingly advertising inaccurate information. Then there's the unresolved questions of copyright, privacy, whether or not AI can develop feelings, and how to manage the workarounds many on the internet are finding to bypass restrictions and generate offensive content or even malware. Meta acknowledged some of these pitfalls in its blog post. There is still more research that needs to be done to address the risk of bias, toxic comments, and hallucinations in large language models. Like other models, Llama shares these challenges. The company wrote, However, it seems Meta believes its open, research-oriented approach is a step forward towards resolving AI's numerous ongoing issues. So, in so many words, it was an announcement that they are throwing their hat into the competition ring, but the company has nothing to share at this time about a public preview or expanded public access. They're in it, but we don't have any hard product to look at at this time. The FTC warns tech, keep your AI claims in check. The FTC, that's the Federal Trade Commission, fresh off announcing a whole new division taking on snake oil in tech, has sent another shot across the bows of the overeager industry with a sassy warning, keep your AI claims in check. A little while ago, like five years ago, that AI-powered is the meaningless tech equivalent of all natural, but it has progressed beyond cheeky. It seems 
like just about every product out there claims to be implementing AI in some way or another, yet few go into detail, and fewer still can tell you exactly how it works and why. The FTC doesn't like it. Whatever someone means when they say powered by artificial intelligence or some version thereof, one thing is for sure. It's a marketing term, the agency writes, and at that, the FTC One thing we know about hot marketing terms is that some advertisers won't be able to stop themselves from overusing the term itself. Markets are shifting. Everyone is saying AI is reinventing everything. But it's one thing to do that, and it's quite another to claim it as an official part of your product. And the FTC wants marketeers to know that these claims may count as false or unsubstantiated something the agency is very experienced with regulating. So if your product uses AI or your marketing team claims it does, the FTC is going to ask you to consider. Are you exaggerating what your AI product can do? If you're making science fiction claims that the product can't back up, like reading emotions, enhancing productivity, or predicting behavior, you may want to tone those down. Are you promising that your AI product does something better than a non-AI product? Sure, you can make those weird claims like four out of five dentists prefer. Your AI-powered toothbrush, but you better have all four of them on the record. Claiming superiority because of your AI needs proof, and if such proof is impossible to get, then don't make the claim. Are you aware of the risk? Reasonably foreseeable risk and impact sounds a bit hazy, but your lawyers can help you understand why you shouldn't push the envelope here. If your product doesn't work, if certain people use it because you didn't even try or the results are biased because your data set was poorly constructed, you're going to have a bad time. And you can't say you're not responsible because that technology is a black box you can't understand or didn't know how to test. The FTC adds, if you don't understand it and can't test it, why are you offering it, let alone advertising it? Does a product actually use AI at all? As was pointed out, claims that something is AI-powered because one engineer used some base tool to optimize a curve or something that doesn't mean your product used AI. Yet plenty seem to think that a drop of AI means the whole bucket is full of it. The FTC thinks otherwise. If you don't need a machine to predict what the FTC might do when those claims are unsupported, it concludes ominously. Since the agency already put out some common-sense guidelines for AI claims back in 2021, it directs questions to that document, which includes citations and precedents. The FTC is also establishing a new office of technology to help mop up tech oozing snake oil. The FTC is embracing change with the establishment of an office of technology that will help it effectively regulate the fast-moving tech world, citing systemic concerns relating to tech and its potential for fraud and abuse. The FTC's new division will ensure the agency doesn't get left in the dust by tech-savvy scammers. Because the FTC is a wide-ranging agency, it's something of a generalist, and when a case requires specialist knowledge, it can bring in outside experts. You definitely want a few good finance people, but do you need a full-timer just for, say, logging regulations? Probably not. But at some point, 
A problem or industry may become prominent enough to warrant a serious and permanent dedication of resources. Whether it's antitrust or consumer protection, or just telling influencers they need to declare that post is sponsored, the tech world is a large and diverse setting for bad behavior and regulation. The announcement of the Office of Technology fell to the agency's CTO, Stephanie Noyan, providing as historical context, response to scammy ads propagating at unprecedented speed over radio back when there was new, she said, while the challenges of tech are new, the systemic concerns they present are familiar. The common thread is that some technologies can facilitate substantial injury to consumers, are misleading, or may negatively affect competitive conditions. From the rise of the surveillance economy to companies' widespread application of artificial intelligence, to business models that employ tech to disrupt markets, the shift in the pace and volume of technological changes mean that more FTC matters need team members with tech expertise. The Office of Technology's top priority is to work with staff and leadership across the agency to strengthen and support the agency on enforcement investigations and litigate cases. This could mean dissecting claims made about an AI-powered product to assess whether the offering is oozing with snake oil or whether automated decision systems for teachers' evaluations adversely impact employment decisions and make inferences that impact compensation and tenure. We will also keep a finger on the pulse of business model change, like shifts in digital advertising ecosystems to help the FTC understand the implications on privacy, competition, and consumer protection. We're working with attorneys and data scientists to decipher the collection and sale of location data and how that data may harm consumers and to understand the opaque algorithms to make decisions affecting millions of consumers. Naming each of these potential violators tells those businesses to watch out. It may be fashionable to say that your human resources productivity tool is AI-powered, but if you can't show that it is safe and effective, the FTC may be knocking on your door. Google tells some employees to share desks after pushing return to office. At five of the company's largest cloud offices, Google is reportedly downsizing office space and the required three days in office strategy is getting scrapped. Google's cloud division is cutting down on office space, including at its Silicon Valley's campus in Sunnyvale, California. Google, a company once known for its lavish and borderline absurd in-office perks like endless free meals and snacks, massages, yoga classes, and designated recreation areas, has fallen on hard times. Now the most standard of office equipment will apparently be in short supply for some of the tech giant workers. In the company's cloud division, Google is cutting down on office space and has told employees they will need to share desks. At five of Google's cloud largest U.S. offices, Kirkland, Washington, New York City, San Francisco, Seattle, and Sunnyvale, California, some workers will be required to rotate desks on a preset schedule. Previously, Google, like many other tech companies, 
had moved away from pandemic-era work from home flexibility to required in-office time. At first, the tech giant encountered a few false starts. Google tried to make the change in 2021, but rising COVID-19 cases caused delays. Then the Alphabet-owned company announced that employees had to return in person at least three days a week, beginning in spring 2022, with executives gunning to eventually scrap hybrid work altogether in favor of 100% office attendance. Yet the three-day strategy seemingly hasn't worked out as the executives hoped. Instead of continuing to enforce that policy, Google is taking the opportunity to cut costs and save on office real estate by shifting to a two-day-per-week hybrid work model, at least for its cloud sector employees. Under the new policy, the company's cloud team will be assigned in-office days of either Monday and Wednesday or Tuesday and Thursday. Workers from each set will share a desk that each uses on their different assigned days. Google staff will have the option to come in more than their assigned two days per week, but if they choose to, they'll be relegated to an overflow drop-in space and won't have access to their regular desk. Most Googlers will now share a desk with one other Googler. Through the matching process, they will agree on a basic desk setup and establish norms with their desk partner to ensure a positive experience in their new shared environment. Since returning to the office, they've run pilots and conducted surveys with cloud employees to explore different hybrid work models and help shape the best experience. Their data showed cloud Googlers value guaranteed in-person collaboration when they are in the office, as well as the option to work from home a few days each week. With this feedback, They've developed a new rotation model, combining the best of pre-pandemic collaboration with the flexibility and focus they've all come to appreciate from remote work, while also allowing them to use spaces more efficiently. However, with this corporate blurb, fails to mention is that by having employees rotate desk space, Google will be able to minimize its real estate footprint. The company noted that some buildings will be vacated as a result of the change. Further, the company reportedly said that the move to downsize will allow Google to continue to invest in cloud's growth. The company hinted at its plan to shrink its real estate holdings in its 2022 fourth quarterly report. They are taking actions to optimize their global office space. As a result, they expect to incur exit costs relating to office space reductions of approximately half a billion dollars in the first quarter of 2023. Google noted earlier this month, San Francisco Gate reported that the company's plan to offload leases in San Francisco. Cloud workers make about a quarter of Google's full-time staff, yet even so, the division isn't profitable. In the company's most recent quarterly report, Google noted nearly half a billion dollars in losses associated with a cloud unit. More generally, the company has been grappling with the same headwinds as most other tech firms. In another major corporate austerity measure, Google laid off about 12,000 employees in January, among them the company's director of mental health and well-being. And, like the return-to-office push, the layoffs haven't exactly been smooth sailing and some employees being sent 
inaccurate descriptions of their severance packages. Presenting the IT Pro Series with Benjamin Rockwell. This is Benjamin Rockwell, and now it's time to get down to business. This is where I talk about the various portions that we deal with in regards to the workplace, IT in the workplace, getting a new job, a, a number of different things. And they're all they're all very much tech-centric. And I'm going to tie two different topics together here. So hang with me. If you think I'm going in direction one, you're going to be wrong. It's direction two. But I want to give you kind of a background, kind of an idea of how I got to this particular topic. And in what it deals with is LinkedIn. If you're not part of LinkedIn, you really need to be. Uh, LinkedIn is one of those places where we're seeing so much in the way of personal job growth for so many people. I recently, eh, whatever it was, uh, five months ago, uh, decided I was going to shift jobs. And I just turned on my ability to receive contacts from various recruiters. And I'd already received those. I'd already been receiving them on a regular basis because they do a search for me and my particular talents. and Or rather, they, they search for my talents and then they come up with somebody like me. All fine and dandy. And we get this on a regular basis. Uh, when I turned that on, of course, that, that meant it went up. I, I got a spike and yes, I got a new job very quickly. And it was it was wonderful. And I'm enjoying my time at my new job. I pretty much ignore most of the different contacts that come in. And and yet sometimes they do manage to surprise me. And that's what this is all about. I, I had a recruiter that reached out to me. And that recruiter uh, is seeking me for a particular job opportunity, whatever it is. And they, they friended me or tried to friend me, tried to connect with me on LinkedIn. These are very standard things to have happen. Because they're looking to connect with you. They're looking to move you into a new position. They're, they're looking to make money for themselves, of course. Recruiters don't do this out of the kindness of their hearts. They're, they're looking, I mean, that's how they make money. Now, I want to, I want to advise everybody that the technical recruiting field it ranges through a wide variety of different people. The, the, the recruiter that reached out to me, great recruiter and a very, very great professionalism. He's building a great brand for himself online, but he's also making sure he's reaching out. He's connecting with people. He's looking for not only the short term, but the long term uh, relationship, because that's how a lot of recruiters move forward. They build a, an entire library, if you will, an entire catalog of all of the people with various skill sets that can be leveraged. There are others that are looking to just make money and move on. Now, professional branding is a key thing. And we should all, you, me, uh, your brother, your sister, your uncle, whoever it is, 
if you are in the workplace, you should be practicing good, positive personal branding. You're building upon your reputation. So uh, there are a variety of different things that you want to do. You want to make sure that you have uh, you have what you do clearly laid out. Uh, you know, this is this is kind of your your background. This is your f- probably one sentence elevator pitch. It's not even a full elevator pitch, 30 seconds as you move from the ground floor to the 30th floor. This is one sentence to draw people in. And then you want a picture. And that picture should be uh, really professional. It should look like you. It should be uh, it pretty much it, we like it to be a professional picture. Uh, everybody I've talked to, uh, who what I look for is a professional picture. But if it's going to include something else other than you, perhaps maybe what you are, uh, what you're good at in the techni- in the work field, uh, things like that. So when we look at these pictures, we make certain uh, certain associations. So you want to make sure that you're choosing the right colors. You're not choosing. You know, some people, I've seen people take a picture of them and presumably their significant other or whoever they were dating at the time and they're leaning on in and it's just not a professional picture. You may love that picture. You may think the world of that picture, but if you're cropping it to just show your face, it, it sends just a completely different image, an image that you may not want to send. So you have to reflect on everything you're doing. You want to be, and I'm going to say it again, professional. You want it to look really great. So, yes, uh, there are times where people do throw in something fun and unique. I know somebody whose, whose name is Marvin, and he has a picture of Marvin the Martian. Okay, I, I might not have gone in that direction, but... It's it's memorable. You see his, you see that that picture of him, and you kind of chuckle, and it, it belies sort of that that comedy that's sitting beneath. The problem that I have, though, the where we get all where we where we started with, is kind of where I wanted to end with. I had a technical recruiter reach out to me. He did okay with his name. He did okay with his title, but. The image he chose was that of Marvel Comic Universe, the MCU movies. Of He chose a picture of one of the characters, Loki, also known as the god of trickery and mischievousness. This is not who I want to be working for. I, I am really scared to even think about connecting with him. But maybe that's just me, Benjamin Rockwell. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin. When the IBM PC was introduced in August of 1981, there were many manufacturers that cloned the IBM PC. Some came up with different features that outperformed the IBM PC, and there were others that tried to emulate what the IBM PC was able to do. And the only thing that was critical was, can it run like an IBM PC? And is it compliant with IBM PC programs? And one of the tests that many people used was Flight Simulator. Well, there's a new version now of Flight Simulator. 
you can now fly the largest aircraft ever built in Microsoft Flight Simulator. Microsoft Flight Simulator is a series of amateur flight simulator programs for Microsoft Windows operating systems and earlier for MS-DOS and classic Mac OS. It is one of the longest-running, best-known, iconic, and most comprehensive home flight simulator programs on the market. Microsoft Flight Simulator is a series of flight simulator programs for MS-DOS, classic Mac OS, and Microsoft Windows operating systems. It was an early product in the Microsoft application portfolio and differed significantly from Microsoft's other software, which was largely business-oriented. As of November 2022, Microsoft Flight Simulator is the longest-running software product line for Microsoft. Predating Windows by three years, Microsoft Flight Simulator is one of the longest-running PC video game series of all time. Proceeds will go towards rebuilding the AN-225 Mariah that was destroyed during Russia's invasion of Ukraine. One year ago today, the largest aircraft ever built was destroyed during the early days of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Now the Antonov AN-225 Mariya is once again taking to the skies, albeit in Microsoft Flight Simulator. What's more, if you buy the add-on, you can help restore the only real-life Mariya that was ever completed. The Ukraine-built Mariya was an extra-heavy lift jet transport aircraft with six engines. It was the heaviest aircraft ever built, and it had the largest wingspan of any plane at 290 feet. The Mariya, which had its first flight in 1988, was used to transport things like Soviet space shuttles, tanks, diesel locomotives, and dozens of cars at a time. A second Mariya was in the works, but it was never finished. There are plans to reconstruct the plane by using parts of the destroyed Mariya and pieces from the unfinished airframe. The project is expected to cost over $500 million. The Microsoft Flight Simulator version of the Antonov AN-225 Mariya is available in six liveries, including an Xbox Aviator Club One. It's in the in-game marketplace on PC today and will be available for the Xbox Series XS and Cloud versions later this month. The Mariah cost $20, with all proceeds going to the Antonov Corporation's Mariah reconstruction efforts. Meanwhile, Innybuilds, the team behind the virtual Mariah, has released a manual and other details about the plane on its forums. Renaissance in Old Tech What is a renaissance? Renaissance is a French word meaning rebirth. It refers to a period of European civilization that was marked by a revival of classical learning and wisdom. There has been a renaissance in some former technologies since the turn of the century. The vinyl revival, also known as the vinyl resurgence, is the renewed interest and increased sales of vinyl records or gramophone records that has been taking place in the music industry. Beginning in 2007, vinyl records experienced renewed popularity in the West and in East Asia. Then there is the revival of discontinued films and the introduction of new film stocks 
are a testament to the growing demand for film photography. These films provide photographers with new creative opportunities and allow them to experiment with new looks and textures. It's something of a renaissance, and not just for older cameras. The digital camera industry as a whole is seeing a resurgence. Previously, industry revenue peaked in 2010 and was shrinking annually through 2021. Then it saw new growth in 2022, and it is projected to continue growing for the coming years. Even so, some Gen Zers are now opting for point-and-shoot digital cameras from the early 2000s, before many of them were born. But why? Why do people adopt one technology over another? According to what scholars call the technology acceptance model, people consider two major aspects when choosing a technology, its perceived usefulness and its perceived sense of use. But certainly there are other considerations. Especially for personal technologies, people choose some technologies for the way they contribute to meaning, and the search for meaning extends beyond choosing a technology to the way a person uses and experiences it. In this context, using a standalone digital camera immediately enhances the meaningfulness of an experience. Meaning is about exercising choice, and nowadays, most people don't own a camera at all. They just use their smartphone. Digital cameras also enable presence. You need to remember to carry the camera around, and in return, it won't give you notifications or show you other apps while you're shooting. That goes for any standalone camera, but old cameras in particular have a set of qualities that help users make meaning. First, the image quality is poorer, but on social media, photos that get posted are less about polish and precision and more about sharing experiences and telling stories. As a medium, social photography becomes an important means to experience something not representable as an image but instead as a social process, an appreciation of impermanence for its own sake. As a person chooses which photos to share and how to edit them, they are expressing their values and developing their sense of self. To some extent, smartphone photo filters allow for some of this expression, but old digital cameras produce different kinds of visual effects and lack the automated features designed to professionalize the look of each image. Older cameras also introduce challenges in getting the images onto social media. They require cables, software, and multiple steps to transfer the images. It's a far cry from one-click image generation with artificial intelligence. What this means is that photography involves many more activities beyond simply taking photos. Photography becomes a bigger part of one's life. All this friction increases a person's involvement in the process, inviting choices along the way. This is precisely the thinking behind the slow technology movement, which aims to design technology for goals like self-reflection rather than efficiency or productivity. Research on meaningful design shows people form stronger attachments to products when they have to make more choices or get more involved. When it comes to finding meaning in older forms of photography, whether you use a digital camera or a film camera, the slower process of creating and sharing images outweighs the speed, 
efficiency, and crisp imagery of smartphone cameras. What it is by crafting a more meaningful of life. The meaning hidden within old digital cameras contains broader lessons. In recent years, critics have bemoaned the rupturing of social institutions and the transformation of digital platforms into places that merely serve as vehicles to sell ads and collect data from users. During the pandemic, life itself threatened to go digital with all the hype surrounding the metaverse. I believe that a key to living well in the near future is to identify where you can create choices so you don't feel like you're drifting along at the mercy of algorithms and the whims of big tech. On the surface, deliberately rejecting the latest, flashiest forms of technology may seem like a problem. You'll be left behind and miss out. But on the other hand, slowing down life by engaging with slower technology creates space to make choices more thoughtfully in relation to your values and cultivate more meaningful involvement in your own life. Seeking meaning with technology means dealing with constant changes in technology. And, on the other hand, slowing down by life by engaging slow technology allows you to take time out for that sip of coffee. Presenting Technology Chatter with Benjamin Rockwell and Marty Winston. Marty Winston joins me now. And Marty... Uh, I want to I want to just relate a story that I had the other day because you came to mind because as much of a problem that I had, I imagine you've got a bigger problem. So I went down uh, and I grabbed my cordless drill and I grabbed what I thought was the right battery and I ran upstairs and then realized at the top of the stairs, I've got the wrong battery. So I set the drill down, and I ran downstairs, grabbed what I thought was the right battery, ran upstairs, <laughs> and it wasn't the right battery. So I then said, okay, this was stupid. I should have went downstairs with a battery, and uh, with a with a drill, rather, and the and the not correct battery, and match it all up. So needless to say, I, I, I spent too much running around. I know how many different items you deal with. I have heard so many different names over the years. And oh, yeah. I have, how do you even, how do you keep track of all of these different batteries? And I mean, even in in the same, in the same manufacturer, sometimes they, they give you too many. Look, a couple of things. Number one, each brand has its own favorite colors. So it's yeah, animals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and number two, they don't fit each other. <laughs> no, they don't. It'd be great if somebody did that. Universal, this, this no. one. No, that's that works against their interest. They're not going to oh, allow I know that. that. I, yeah. it's, it's I have a, seen uh, adapters on on the, the black market, but you know. Yeah, yeah, it's, sure. it's it's all the razor and blade concept. I get it. Yeah, I'm not sure it's worth chasing that. Anyway, I've I have. 14, 15 different brands of batteries here, and within some of those brands, multiple types. Yeah. And one of the frustrating things for me is every time I get out of the car in the garage or go to the garage for any other reason, I've got a decent workbench out there. It came with the house. Yeah. But it's covered end-to-end with batteries and chargers and stacks of stuff. And if... What? I can't use it for anything. <laughs> it's only a battery charger holder. Yeah. So I thought, okay... How 
do I deal with this footprint and make it more vertical and uh, less of a burden? Mm-hmm. And I thought, okay, I'm going to have to pull in a carpenter and have a special shelf built and all of that stuff. When it suddenly occurred to me, I had two equipment racks in South Carolina. I had a four footer that or five or whatever it is that, that fits more than everything I need for here. Yeah. And I, and I had a seven footer. Mm, okay. Now, I do my electrical work, electronics work in the basement. Mm-hmm, yeah. The basement rafters are seven feet and a whisper above the floor. Uh-huh. Yeah. So having a seven foot rack down here, it didn't even make sense to put it together until I thought, oh, hey, I can I can make it short as possible uh, depth on the thing set the shelves in there, use lots of power distribution units, PDUs. You've seen them yeah, in, in yeah. servers all the time. And these guys can can go on a picnic. You know, I, I have a couple of, of things. Ego is huge batteries and chargers, so yeah, that's going to yeah. be a whole shelf. Ryobi, I just happen to have a lot of batteries. Yeah, so okay. That'll be a shelf. And everybody else can share. You know, works, yeah, I have a few more of those, but it, it's not that big. And there's Rockwell and there's Bosch and there's Dremel and there's Skill and, and there's Flex and all of the Milwaukee and all these other brands around here. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I thought that sounds like a plan. So I went looking for the pieces of rack because in order to move, I had to have it disassembled in South Carolina. Yeah. And I found the seven foot uprights well enough. Uh-huh. Now, now the cross arm that allows the you're going to have problems if you can't find that that size of item. But yeah, well, okay. Those, those four arms, those four arms on the cross arms, each have three sections that allow you to adjust okay, their yeah, total length, yeah. which is a total of twelve pieces. And I found eleven out of the twelve pieces. Yeah. So to make the rack go together right, I I measured carefully and cut a two by two to be one of the arms. <laughs> I put that up on the top because there's less load there. I don't think it's going to be an issue. And if it is, I'll cry. What are you going to do? Now, the other issue, I was able to get it put together and stood it up. And it seemed to fit just under the rafters. Not that it would have gone through the door to the garage or anything, but it fit just under the rafters. Mm -hmm. And and then it didn't. I thought, what's what's wrong here? And and I told, well, it turned out the rack had a set of two inch wheels and a set of three inch wheels. <laughs> <laughs> it was sliding so well. And then it just, Oh my. Okay. It just wedged itself. Yeah. All right. So, so how'd you resolve that? I bought another pair of three inch wheels or two inch wheels. Two rather. inch wheels. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So we'll barely make it. The guy next door. Now, were they made out of wood? Uh, no, no, they, no, no. Okay. they were plastic though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they won't mark the floor. Not that you could tell. <laughs> <laughs> you were saying the guy next door. Yeah. The guy next door works in construction and uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, he has uh, musculature that I've long lost. Mm-hmm. Uh, so between the two of us, if I keep the whole rack horizontal, kind of like a casket, I'm pretty sure we can walk it up to the garage and the garage is more than tall enough. I just have to get everything else assembled. Today, I went through the boxes of rack accessory parts, mm-hmm. and I found yeah. enough shelves and more than enough PDUs. This thing will be, you could have 60-watt Christmas trees running on this if you need it. <laughs> <laughs> Something to remember for next Christmas. But, yeah, but those are things that I'm not going to put into it until we get outdoors. 
I also wanted to make sure that the lowest level did not have anything I have to bend down for. So it's having those plastic cases like the Dremels come in. Sure. It's, you know, trying to pretend that the guy who's going to be using it is old. <laughs> As for now, that's the voice of Marty Winston. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank. Thank you, Benjamin. And thank you, Marty. TCF, which is the Trenton Computer Festival, is back again with an impersonal festival and streaming talks available online. Enjoy an exciting day of digital technology-related talks, workshops, exhibits, and vendor sales and demonstrations. There are 11 separate tracks, including a full day devoted to electric vehicle, that's EV technology. It all takes place on the College of New Jersey campus on Saturday, March the 18th. The theme this year is EVs. Our keynote speaker is Lee Goldberg, author of Green Electronics and a contributing editor of Electronics Design Magazine. The New Jersey Electric Vehicle Association has arranged for an EV car show with the opportunity to test drive EVs. The New Jersey Electric Vehicle Association is partnering with the Trenton Computer Festival by bringing dozens of different electric vehicle models on Saturday, March 18th, that's 2023, at the College of New Jersey. The New Jersey Electric Vehicle is one of about 100 chapters of the National EVA, a grassroots organization with a mission to accelerate the adoption of EVs by education and demonstration. They will also be joined by the New Jersey Department of Environmental Protection, Bureau of Mobile Sources that will be offering rides and drives through local dealers. For more information on TCF and to register, please visit the following website, tcf-nj.org. Public Service Announcements Computer Club Meetings in the New York New Jersey and Connecticut Tri-State Region. Log on to the club website for more information on remote meeting ID. TechEd Connect, formerly Westchester PC Users Group, will have a presentation on stained glass windows. Thursday, March the 2nd. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom and the website is wpcug.org. The Amateur Computer Group of New Jersey has a meeting Friday, March 3rd. Meeting time is 8 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Jitsi. Website is acgnj.org. The New York Amateur Computer Club has a meeting Thursday, March the 9th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom. And the website is nyacc.org. The Long Island Macintosh Users Group meets Friday, March the 10th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom. And the website is limac.org. The King's Byte Computer Club meets Tuesday, March the 14th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. at the Park Plaza Restaurant, 220, that's 220, Cadman Plaza West in Brooklyn, and the phone number to confirm is 347-278-7320. The Brookdale Computer Users Group has a meeting Thursday, March the 23rd. 
Meeting time is 6.45 p.m. Virtual meeting via Zoom. Website is bcug.com. Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on prn.live, streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live, on the Internet. If you have any questions for us, just send us an email address to hank at pcradioshow.org. In the meantime, stay in touch and remember to do regular backups. I'm Hank Key, and on behalf of Michael Horowitz, Benjamin Rockwell, and Marty Winston, we thank you for listening. Stay safe and healthy until we meet again, same time, same station, next week.